America lost a legend, a patriot, and a hero over the weekend with the passing of Senator John McCain. The maverick galvanized the political sphere in death, just as he did in life. While some insisted on disrespecting Senator McCain's memory, the people of Arizona did their late senator proud last night, voting for the Honorable Martha McSally in the Republican Senate primary over two opportunistic crackpots. The GOP clearly still has a problem with grifters, but in the wake of McCain's passing, McSally's victory was a nice step in the right direction. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth. This is the political pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. After yet another week of civil warring within the GOP and the Democratic Party, you'll need it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Our apologies today for the poor audio quality. Tiana and I were actually just about to hit record and our mic unfortunately broke, but we figured since we'd planned out a great podcast for today and with so much going on that we still wanted to get some content out there. So we promise by next podcast, we will have probably new and improved mics and everything should be running smoothly. But that being said, we definitely do need a drink, if not now more than ever. So the story for the drink today, which is actually not a cocktail, but rather a shot of vodka, comes from the late Senator McCain and in an interesting bout of bipartisanism, uh, a story about him and Hillary Clinton. So when Hillary Clinton was in the Senate and she and McCain had to travel to Estonia together, they apparently had a drinking game one night in a hotel in the Old Square in Estonia. And uh, I believe that it was, at the time, Senator Clinton who won out with four shots of vodka. We will not be doing four shots of vodka, because otherwise we would probably not be giving you a very good podcast Does that mean after the that. Dems are uh, better drinkers <laughs> than, the, than the Republicans? You know, there were all these good Hillary partying stories that I always said. Maybe she would have won if, if, if she used that as a part of the campaign. But alas, we will never know. And in any case... Uh, Pouring one out for the good Senator McCain. Wow, I got a lot worse at that since college. Yeah, I bet Hillary's better than that uh, than we are. Uh, Anyway, uh, Avery, what are we doing? Um, So, obviously, today we need to talk about the late John McCain, and that will be uh, the second half of our show. But the first half today we'll be talking about, um, of course, the massive primaries that happened last night. There were wins, I guess you could say, on both sides. Um, Definitely some encouraging signs and some encouraging victories, uh, both that can be viewed on the Democratic side and the Republican side. In Arizona, we saw the victory of the GOP establishment coming through rather than the alt-right nationalism that has been surfacing along with the far-left socialism. Um, And we did see a victory on the far-left as well in the governor's race in Florida. So, Tiana, how about you kick it off with, I guess, Arizona, Martha McSally, her victory there? So, the Wall Street Journal, which I am usually a big fan of, and I guess that they had one social media intern today who put out a relatively poor tweet in which they said that Martha McSally beat the two more conservative candidates, Chemtrail Kelly Ward and Sheriff Jar Arpaio, who you might remember as the person that Trump pardoned, uh, he Arpaio was found to be engaging in extremely abusive and criminal practices when he was the sheriff of Maricopa County in Arizona, and probably shouldn't have even been pardoned for his behavior, Absolutely considering not. how other people have not been prioritized in terms of being pardoned. Exactly, he was Trump's first pardon. So. 
they were basically running for the dregs of the alt-right. And it's there are a lot of people to blame for how we wound up in that situation. But thank God the clear heads of Arizona prevailed and Martha McSally, who was, I believe, in the Air Force for over 20 years. Um, yeah, so Martha McSally, who was in the Air Force from 1988 to 2010, has been a GOP congresswoman representing uh, a district in Arizona for the last four years, and now finally ran for Senate. She won the primary last night. Thank God. This means that the GOP avoids a Roy Moore situation in which a safe Senate seat uh, gets passed over to a Democrat purely because of Republican incompetency when it comes to selecting candidates. Well, I think also, too, the other important factor to mention is not only is this a win for the GOP establishment in terms of hopefully securing a victory in Arizona, but Again, I think this is better, even as a Democrat, I can say that this is better for politics and our political future as a whole. I mean, we talk about all the time how these extreme left and extreme right movements are polarizing the electorate and making it so difficult for anyone to actually have a candidate that truly represents their views. And it's forcing people to choose between the lesser of two evils. I think when you have more moderate candidates running in an increasingly polarized, um, with an increasingly polarized voter base, that can only be good for both sides because at least if you're going to have to bite the bullet on someone, they don't compromise your values too much and your political beliefs too much. So the same can be said with uh, the Democrats pushing moderate candidates as well as the GOP pushing moderate candidates as well. However, in Florida, we did see uh, an extremely unlikely come-from-behind victory from Andrew Gillum, who uh, won the Democratic primary for governor in Florida. Beforehand, uh, he was polling at fourth in the polls behind plenty of other Democrats until Bernie Sanders stepped in um, and endorsed him and sent out a big mailer to his email list about getting out to vote for Andrew Gillum. And we've seen um, a very leftist progressive victory in Florida. But again, everyone's touting this as a huge victory like Ocasio-Cortez. However, I think the difference here is that can a far left progressive candidate win in Florida, especially against a Trumper like DeSantos? I just think that this probably isn't the winning strategy. Yeah, and especially when you consider that, I mean, Florida went for Trump against all odds. Yeah. So you're dealing with a swing state that has been swinging right in the immediate past. So right and now— not only right, but far right. Yeah, so, I mean, Florida's always been a really interesting state because you have this massive Latino population that also happens to be— distinctly more Republican than the rest of the nation's Latino population because they're primarily Cuban immigrants. So obviously extreme anti-communists appreciation for limited government. Well, also too, with the religious factor um, that comes into play in Florida, especially with these quote unquote minority groups is a lot of them are single issue voters on abortion. So they are going with the candidate that is pro-life. And you saw a lot of uh, Latinos in Florida in the past election hold their tongue, hold their nose, vote for Trump because of their thought that he would protect um, abortion. Yeah, no, and that's like a good point because, again, as we saw, not that Florida is Alabama, but I think that Doug Jones in the end was able to nab the victory because he was able – 
I mean, you can call it authentic or not, but he was able to position himself as a lot more tolerant towards pro-life Democrats than a lot of other Democrats who could have theoretically ran for that spot. And I don't think that you can beat, like, and mind you, DeSantis is not Roy Moore, obviously, but DeSantis came sort of out of nowhere. He rode the Trump train and a lot of good publicity into into winning this governor's election, which, as which as you might recall, Rick Scott is challenging Bill Nelson's seat uh, in the Senate, and Rick Scott's actually running fairly competitively, all things considered. But um, it all comes down to the question of what does a blue wave look like? Does a blue wave look like this far-left insurgency, or is it quietly being able to take over the right-wing crazies who don't know how to hold their tongues. Absolutely, but I also think what we're seeing and what is reality, what we're seeing throughout the media and what is being emphasized by the media and exaggerated is different from what the reality of the blue wave is looking like in America right now. I think if you're taking it just from strictly what you've been seeing come across your Twitter feeds or what you've been seeing on the front page of Politico, Washington Post, any political um, newspaper... I think if you were to ask anyone what the blue wave is, a lot of people are thinking that it's this leftist socialist movement um, headlined by Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, when in reality, on the Democratic side, you're seeing small victories. I mean, we don't know if they'll actually determine an end result in actually winning seats in these elections, but you're seeing small victories, at least from the primary perspective, of Democrats getting, especially in California, I mean— getting their names in the race, making it through the runoff primaries against Republicans in historically red districts in California. I know with California obviously having two big cities in Los Angeles and San Francisco that are heavily Democrat, people look at it as an overall blue state, but there are plenty districts in California that are extremely red historically that we're seeing candidates really taking establishment Republicans that have been in office for a long time, giving them a run for their money. So if those candidates are actually able to flip the seat and not just put up a competitive primary, I think that's really what the blue wave looks like. Yeah, and especially, like, I mean, it's called the Orange Curtain in Orange County for a reason. So Orange County has historically always been Republican. In 2016, it very narrowly went for Hillary, I believe. But again, it's because Orange County is... is in a way, I think it, it thinks of itself as as the GOP wave of the future. It's not terribly religious, heavily immigrant-oriented. It's a lot of successful immigrants it's who have all this fiscally conservative, which is why it's always voted red. However, you have extremely vulnerable Republicans like Dana Rohrbacher, who has obviously been cuddling up to Russia a lot. Um, you have people like Daryl Issa, who are who is um, although I guess Daryl Issa, I think he's technically San Diego County, um, but you have a lot of these. Republicans who have been in Congress for years who are being who are either vacating their seats like Ed Royce who's vacating his seat or they are being challenged by fairly uh, compelling competitors in in a place like Orange County and it just goes to show who are the kinds of candidates that will win and I think just as much as the left might be overstating the power of their more fringe movements I mean if you look last night at the vote breakdown Martha McSally got over half of the vote. She got 51%. Kelly Ward got 29%. And Joe Arpaio got 20%. Wow, I still is, can't believe 76,000 people have voted for Joe Arpaio. I know. I mean, it's it's crazy. And it's there are a lot of negative things you can pull for that. The fact that you have between Kelly Ward and Joe Arpaio, almost 200,000 people willing to vote for 
vote for people who after John McCain died, so Jarl Pio did an interview, and after McCain died, they said, they said, like, asked him something about, like, like do you mourn him as, as a legend or whatever? And he said yes. And they said, do you think that John McCain is a hero? Mind you, if you, you probably already know this, but just to recap, John McCain was shot down over Hanoi during the Vietnam War, spent five years as a prisoner of war, two in solitary confinement, and was repeatedly given offers to leave because he came from a very prestigious U.S. military family. He did not leave. He said that it was against the honor of the U.S. military or of the or of um, it's I forget what the specific code was, but he said it was um, he would not go before other soldiers who had been there longer. And Joe Arpaio didn't say he was a hero. He said he had never had a hero until he met Donald Trump. So he doesn't know if he could call John McCain a hero. So, it, yeah, it's a little bit terrifying that you have hundreds of thousands of people willing to vote for people like that. And Kelly Ward, who said after John McCain announced that he was no longer seeking treatment for his cancer. So a couple of hours before his death, she posted on Facebook that he announced this to take away the limelight from her campaign. So really just class acts of people, people who, you know, will obviously be sorely missed in American political discourse. But um, while, again, there are negatives to be pulled from that, I think it just goes to show that the fringe doesn't have all the power, not yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even with the Bernie Sanders-endorsed candidates that we've seen kind of sensationalized in the media, other than Ocasio-Cortez and now Andrew Gillum, and by the way, Bernie has been across the country throughout every major primary and every major state endorsing progressive candidates. And for the most part, all of those candidates have lost and have not been victorious and have not been successful. So although we're seeing that in the media, when you're actually looking at who's making it through the primary, and not only that, who's making it through the primary, who's polling competitively, who actually has a chance to flip these seats, it's not this far left-wing movement, it is these moderate Democrats. I mean, take even in California District 25, which is a suburban um, area right north of Los Angeles, which is very historically Republican. Uh, Steve Knight is a GOP representative there right now. And they've, I think, voted Republican in the last four congressional elections, but they've been a toss-up district in terms of um, federal elections. Uh, they narrowly voted for Clinton over Trump in this previous election, but then before that, um, voted for Romney over Obama and I believe McCain over Obama as well. And you're seeing Katie Hill, the Democratic challenger in this race, run a very moderate campaign. And by my estimation, I think she will win and she will flip this seat. She's running... Um, pro-guns, but pro-choice, and has this kind of interesting rhetoric that's been developing, and I think you're seeing that in candidates, not only in conservative districts in California, but across the country, and I think time will tell in November if this blue wave really does happen, but we're definitely seeing meaningful traction. Yeah, and I mean, both these populist movements on the left and on the right have a dangerous strain of bend the kneeism that I think is sort of emerging. The difference being that for Republicans, it's a lot more virtue signaling in terms of tone than on policy. Like you see this all the time, especially like when you had Tommy Lahren and Mike Cernovich, the Pizzagate mysticist, um, campaigning with Kelly Ward. 
And they insisted that this race was a referendum on support for President Trump. And they were saying, you know, Martha McSally essentially doesn't bend the knee enough to President Trump, which is ridiculous considering that she served our country for over two decades. And I think that that sort of, you know, qualifies you enough. Um, Whereas on the left, rather than bending the knee to cults of personality, which I think was more of an Obama-era thing, it's now sort of the single issue, do you stand by free college? Do you stand by Medicare for all? And I don't know which is more dangerous. I think that, obviously, if you have every single Democrat running bending to these insane policies that no one yet knows how to fund, obviously that's worse than something about tone. But I do think that the tone of total and complete sequency, that will cor- that could corrode the right if we are not careful. And it's why I received a lot of flack over the weekend for writing a piece for The Spectator in which I was critical of Candace Owens. Um, the Turning Point USA communications director that I know we've talked about on the show before. Um, And if you've listened to the show, nothing in the piece was that different than what I've previously said, except for um, when she was harassing the family of Molly Tibbetts, the girl who was killed in Iowa uh, earlier this month. So I know that I was receiving a lot of flack for that. People saying, why are you trying to silence members of the movement? I wasn't trying to silence anyone. However, if we are the side that believes in that capitalism is the great determiner of American society and that we vote with our dollars and that we vote with our attention on social media, just maybe we elevate voices that aren't so shamelessly opportunistic and aren't so eager to please the cult of personality. Um, and I just, I, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how these, how these sort of two litmus tests, attitudinal on the right and extreme left-wing policies on the Democratic side pan out when it comes to 2018. Because I think that, Either one has to be vindicated because there will there either will be a blue wave or there won't be. If there is a blue wave, I think it goes to show that Republicans cannot run on on worshiping the cult, you know. And if the blue wave doesn't happen, I think it goes to show that these these buzzwords, free college, are just not sustainable in terms of winning over the hearts and minds of middle America. Yeah, I agree. And I think the one important thing to note, too, is that with this kind of insurgency of leftist socialist movements and then extreme right movements as well, what we're seeing is both of them garnering a ton of attention in the media. But when you're looking at the actual results, the far right movements and the individuals who are representing the far right are actually the people who are coming out victorious, at least in terms of primary standards. And maybe that has in large part to do with Trump endorsing candidates, but uh, we see Bernie Sanders not having much effect, but you do see characters that Trump has endorsed, just like in the Florida governor's race, making it through these primaries. And so if you're looking at it versus far left, far right movements, who's winning? I would say the far right's winning, definitely, in terms of actually being able to get votes and gain traction. However, if that's a strategy that can win over enough of uh, an electoral base to actually gain seats where we're yet to see other than obviously Trump himself. I mean, at the very least, I will say it's it's been pleasing to me to see how many people on the right that I admire and respect have been adamant and vocal about pushing back against the fringe. There is no reason that we should have people who promulgate absolutely delusional conspiracy theories that we should elevate them as voices worth listening to. 
yes, there are lots of people who are popular, but this is not a popularity contest, especially when it comes to political ideology, ethics, morals. These are not things that should be based on winning. It's, again, it comes down to the fundamental question of why is America great? Are we great because we win or are we great because we were founded on the greatest principles known to mankind? I happen to think it's the latter, and I think that the people on the right who will win in the long run are those who believe that it is the latter. And it's it. yes, we can talk all about the horse racing of it, but again, I think that a lot will be determined in 2018 or, in, or during the midterms. Because if, if Democrats obtain subpoena power, yeah, maybe a couple members of a fringe right that I disdain got a couple contributorship deals with Fox News. But Democrats can make Trump's life hell. I mean, there was the Axios report that was circulating over the weekend that showed all of the things that Democrats fully intend on on subpoenaing Trump for. I mean, if you think like the Stormy Daniels probe and everything looks bad now, Democrats can make Trump's life hell. I mean, I, it's not even in their best interest if they do win a majority in Congress for them to try and impeach Trump if they can just use every skeleton in the closet to bludgeon other congressional Republicans with. I mean, 2020 could become a bloodbath. But again, that's not going to happen if 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 the left hinges onto virtue signaling and focuses more on slamming Fox News and asking why Ainsley Earhart gets interviews with Trump as opposed to Anderson Cooper rather than seeking out, I don't know, the sort of opportunity that they could have if they play their cards right. Yeah, well, I think... A big issue facing the left and also a part where the GOP establishment and those within the GOP and and those who are members of the right are able to be victorious in distancing themselves from the fringe right movements of their party in a way that Democrats are not, is that it's difficult for Democrats to blatantly denounce Medicare for all or blatantly denounce um, free college education because in terms of political correctness, it's not necessarily politically correct. It may be a lofty, crazy idea, but it's harder to shut those ideas down and get those people and, and separate yourselves from those individuals than it is for members of the GOP establishment to say, hey, I'm not cool with family separation. Um, and these kind of intolerant immigration policies that are not compassionate. I'm not okay with blatant racism and things like that. So it's easier for the GOP to distance themselves and claim the moral high ground um, against the fringe movements within their own party. And I think that will serve to GOP candidates' benefits because they are able to disassociate themselves with that. But I think what Democrats are struggling with is they are getting associated with the loud voices on the fringe left of their party, and it's become difficult for them to distance themselves from that. Yeah, and I mean, the thing about moments like these is that you can't be popular with everyone. You will always get criticized for denouncing people that are gaining traction, always. I mean, I experienced that this weekend. But, I mean, that's why political opportunism just doesn't have long legs. Because eventually... Some faction will win, and it won't be the faction that's tried to blanket appease everyone, you know? And I think no one demonstrated that better than not just to immediately foray into something that I think Avery and I are both very eager to talk about, but that is the legacy of John McCain. But I think someone like McCain, I mean, he his life was a demonstration of what it was like to stand up for something. And I'm saying that as someone who didn't even agree. I didn't agree with McCain-Feingold. I didn't agree with his vote on... 
the skinny repeal um, last summer uh, in the Senate. But he still was an American hero who stood for something. Um, Avery, I'm interested in the Democrat perspective of of McCain and his legacy and his passing. I think the loss of McCain and especially with the trajectory of where at least some members in the GOP party are heading, I think the loss of McCain is very troublesome for not only Democrats, I, I don't even really want to make this partisan, but just the future of American democracy and democratic cooperation in America as a whole. Because I see McCain as, yes, someone that I disagreed with on some of his ideas and his some of his votes. However, I see him as someone who was reasonable and willing to hear out the other side. Of course, we're all entitled, entitled to our own opinion. Tiana and I have different opinions on things all the time, but we are able to agree when there is something that we can compromise on and when there is something where we're willing to see each other's other side, the other side of each other's arguments, I guess is what, what I'm trying to say. And I think we are seeing less and less members on either side of the aisle willing to do that. And so for that, McCain's loss is troublesome, and he did set an amazing example in that regard. Um, I actually read a great piece, I think it was in the National Review, actually, um, that showed, I guess, the dichotomy between McCain's uh, patriotism and Trump's nationalism, and showed the difference in those styles of leadership and politics. And what we're seeing in America, I think, is nationalism that is trying to fall under the guise of patriotism, but which is actually very troublesome for America as a whole, rather than patriotism, wanting what's best for your country, wanting what's best for your fellow Americans and staying true to the virtues and the values um, that are the fundamental makeup of this country. And so I think McCain was a great example of patriotism, wanting what's best for the country. Although politicians can disagree on that, it's all in good faith. However, I don't see a nationalistic movement to be in good faith. It's in the best interests of certain members of society. And what McCain understood, perhaps better than any recent politician I can think of in their capacity to articulate this message. McCain understood that patriotism is not blind. Patriotism is not about what the president says or what a party leader says, but about upholding the ideals in which the United States was founded. So from his uh, final farewell letter that was delivered after his passing, this is an excerpt that I think really sums up this political moment, but at the same time, could be said in 200 years from now and would be just as pertinent. In it, McCain says, we weaken our greatness when we confuse our patriotism with tribal rivalries that have sown resentment and hatred and violence in all the corners of the globe. We weaken it when we hide behind walls rather than tear them down, when we doubt the power of our, ide- of our ideals rather than trust them to be the great force for change. They always have been. And I highlight this portion in particular, not because, oh, wall, Trump, ha, ha, ha. No, it's so much more than that. It's about the fact that if you think about what was this country founded on, religious liberty, individual liberty, justice for all, equality of opportunity, due process, the idea that anyone should be allowed to come here, work hard, not be given anything, but earn the American dream, these are ideals have always led in the right direction. And have we always lived up to these ideals? Absolutely not. 
we had slavery for a century. But the fact remains that we've always aimed for these ideals. And even when we haven't gotten it right, we've understood that there was no original sin so great that we cannot improve upon ourselves. And so it's been particularly heartening for me to see. I know that a lot of Republicans are very upset because people who slandered McCain during the 2008 election are now changing their tone. Yes, I believe that it's hypocritical. And maybe if I weren't so emotional about McCain's death, maybe I'd find more capacity to be upset about it. But right now, I'm just appreciative that we can all take a moment to acknowledge that someone who voluntarily let himself stay in a war camp, that we can all respect the fact that that's an American hero. And it's been disturbing to see the amount of people on the fringe left, you know, the ones who think, like, any sort of act of American aggression is evil and that, like, America is an evil country. See those people. That's predictable. Those people are always going to hate McCain. I've known that forever. It has been disturbing for me to see on the right people saying, oh, dying doesn't make you a saint. No, dying doesn't make you a saint. And you can criticize McCain's legacy in the Senate all you want. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's a time and a place, and I don't think that this is that time. But fair, you do you. When... Representative John Lewis passes, I disagree with almost all of his politics. He's a fairly left-wing Democrat, and there's not much I agree on him with when it comes to politics. That doesn't change the fact that he was a civil rights hero. And I will not use his passing to criticize his politics or to call him not a great American patriot. I think that it's, it, it's so sad to see how some corners of the right have fallen. And... I mean, just the whole dying doesn't make you a saint. Yeah, we know that. But there are, and, you know, there was some controversy that I don't even want to talk too much about Trump in this segment just because I want to think about the Republican Party as it should be, not as it is. Um, But there was some drama with Trump not issuing um, any statement acknowledging the fact that McCain was a great American hero and not issuing the order for the flag to stay at half-staff. Um, at the White House that was later reversed. He finally followed through on it after a lot of public backlash. But in response, a lot of members of the hardcore blind MAGA right, I'm not even going to name them, they were saying, oh, but, you know, Trump, McCain was so critical of Trump. Could you expect him to, to honor his death? Yes. Yes. Because how about, all right, it'll be a different story if another person Let's say, all right, I don't even want to speak about the hypothetical death of senators. Let's say there's a senator who passed who was very critical of Trump. Yeah, Trump, I would still expect him to issue some sort of a statement issuing his condolences. I wouldn't expect too much recognition of him. But before McCain had any sort of political history, he was first and foremost an American patriot. How about you can be critical of him when you dedicate five years of your life to sacrificing your bodily safety for this country. Yeah, and I mean, what example are American politicians and even anyone in America who is, who's been extremely vocal and had a loud voice about politics lately, what example are we all setting and are they all setting if you can't acknowledge that you may have a difference in opinion with someone, but can't acknowledge that they deep down are a good person and acted in good faith. And that is what's so troublesome about the time that we're living in right now. I think people in politics should disagree 
on how to get things done. But you should never be assuming that the other person on the other side of the aisle or even in your own party who you don't agree with because members of the far right, the MAGA Trumpers, don't agree with McCain, have vilified him even after his death, as Shanna stated in the media right now. And you can't see and assume that that person deep down is just trying to put the best interests of the country as they believe them to be in good faith and put those first and forward. I think this is what is making our political discourse so futile at the moment because we're believing that people are not acting in good faith. And maybe there is an increased amount of people that are acting not in good faith, but then those people need to be out of politics. We need to get back to people getting into politics like John McCain because they believed in what was best for the country. Maybe the roadmap to get there was different, but at their core, they believed what they were doing was good and there was no malintent. Um, And I think that's what's extremely ironic about McCain's death is all of the rhetoric that's ensued afterwards that has been... um, critical of McCain has been absolutely antithetical to what he stood for in the first place, which was putting America first in a patriotic manner and lifting this country up. If anything, it's just been critical of McCain for his policies and not for his virtues and his love for the country. Yeah. And to bring it back to the 08 election, you know, McCain was the first candidate that I ever specifically remember rooting for against my parents' uh, probably sound advice at the time. I insisted on wearing a McCain-Palin shirt to my extremely liberal uh, middle school. And I remember getting glared at by a few of my teachers, and one of them actually dress-coded me. So, and she was like, she she was like, you have to go change into your gym clothes. And I'm like, you know, this is just like a t-shirt. Like, she can't like make me change the t-shirt. So I changed out of my <laughs> Ralph Lauren mini skirt that 12-year-old me thought was so cool. And I threw on my oversized gym shorts and walked around with this enormous McCain-Palin t-shirt all day in ballet flats. And I was just getting the weirdest looks. And it strikes me that that was a more civil time in politics. And that still, someone like John McCain could still be slandered as being a sexist and a homophobe by the left. And again, I could choose to be angry about that, and I hope that I hope that like the left can learn that that the euphemism treadmill will eventually run out. And then when you wind up with Trump, you sort of ran out of words to say about him because you use them all on John McCain and Mitt Romney, you know. But if we had that era of politics, I think we can have them again. I think I, I, I remain hopeful that the legacy of McCain can teach some people something, you know, and. I know that a lot of people on the right are upset about the uh, the flip-flopping on John McCain's legacy. Um, And I think that that's fair and I think that's valid. But I at least will try and derive a bit of hope from it that maybe, maybe the sane center, the sane center right and the sane center left have learned something from this. Maybe the left will tone down the rhetoric the next time there's a Republican they dislike. I don't think that this is going to be true for most of the left or all of it. But I think that for some, they'll think, oh, maybe I'm not going to go ahead and call Martha McSally the biggest bigot ever because she doesn't believe in free college, you know? Um, But if anything, just the fact that there was still a, I would say, overwhelming public outcry of support and condolences for the McCain family at this time, that gives me hope. And maybe it's just because at this point I'm so cynical about politics, I will cling on to anything that I'm given, but it really, it really does give me hope. I think a great example to look at when understanding 
where we were in politics in terms of political rhetoric and respecting who you're debating against, respecting those people in politics that maybe don't agree with your views compared to where we are now is the clip that is, I guess, somewhat famous. It's definitely been circulating around the internet lately, especially with um, McCain's passing. And we can actually roll the clip um, during this after if you haven't heard it yet. Um, But it's when McCain was at a political event and uh, someone from the audience asked him a question and said that they don't trust Obama and then began to call Obama an Arab because he, Obama was a, quote, Arab. McCain took the microphone from this lady and said, no, Obama's a decent family man who I just happen to disagree with on a few political issues. If that were the same debate and the same political event that were to happen today um, in the time of Trump, Trump or anyone else, even Democrat or Republican, probably would have let that person speak, would have not refuted their points, and potentially even agreed with them. And if, as politicians who are supposed to be running this country and having the best interests of the American people at heart, if they can't set that example of just civility and respecting another person and their ideas, then really who can? And I think that's the predicament that we're in. So I encourage, I mean, we'll roll the clip right after this, but I encourage people to really think about that. And if they think that would have played out in today's political culture, because I'm almost hundred percent positive that that exact question and how McCain handled that would not have gone the same way. We're scared. Um, we're scared of an Obama presidency and I'll, I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'm concerned about, um, you know, someone that, you know, cohorts with uh, domestic terrorists such as heirs. I have to tell you, he is a decent person and a person that you do not have to be scared as president of the United States. I got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I I, I have read about him and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not... No, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. So, um, on that note, I guess this is probably the natural point to stop. We didn't even get into the insanity happening at the Catholic Church. Um, it's honestly, I can't deal with any more sadness in like this episode. Um, so let's leave it at that. I think that, um, I don't think that we've seen the last of what will reverberate with McCain's passing. Doug Ducey, it is constitutionally, uh, up to Doug Ducey to replace McCain at least through the year 2020. If McCain had either resigned or passed before, May 30th, uh, his seat would have been open on the ballot. But for right now, Doug Ducey, who I think is an excellent governor, is responsible for replacing a seat. So we can look forward to finding out who will be McCain's replacement for the GOP. I think this is a very good thing because I chugged Doug Ducey's judgment. And with us having narrowly avoided, not narrowly, but for us having actually, you know, had almost 50% of the electorate vote for Kelly Ward and Gerald Pio, probably good that Arizona doesn't have two red Senate seats in jeopardy at this moment. Um, so on that note, we will leave you.
Yep. And as always, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Tiana the First at Avery Hogarth, um, SoundCloud and iTunes, whatever you prefer. Leave us a review or get to us on our website at uh, thepoliticalpregame.com. Thank you. Yeah.